friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. I hope you're having a wonderful Easter season. We have a great show for you today, as we do each week. And again, thank you for joining us again this week uh, to all our regular listeners. My co-host Ashley McGuire joins me at the bottom of the hour with some enlightening takes on the FBI's memo about investigating Catholics. What are the First Amendment uh, concerns that we should have here? Ashley has been following this story that much of the media is ignoring, but we're going to get her views on that. We're excited also to talk to Chloe Cole about the very important topic of transgenderism and its effects on young people. She is a very brave young woman who went down the very ugly road of gender medicine. I hate to call it medicine, but the way uh, in the way it applies to children, she was very young when she had her puberty blocked, cross-sex hormones administered, even a mastectomy. She's going to tell us all about that. She's only 18 as we speak. It's a it's a powerful story from a very powerful and a vulnerable source, and I. I'm really glad that, I'm really honored that that she's willing to talk to, to us about it here at Conversations with Consequences. Welcome to the show, Chloe. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Chloe, you are only 18. Myself and many of our listeners can remember back when we were 18, and we were not doing the kinds of things that you are doing. You you are very bravely going about the world and uh, telling your story and, and entering into situations which I'm sure are very difficult, putting yourself in the spotlight, answering aggressive questions and being very, very brave. Where do you find the strength for, for what what you are doing? I think the biggest thing motivating me is just knowing that there's more there's more young people and especially young girls and boys who are out there struggling with the same thing that I am and they don't really have Many of them don't really have a voice and they're not able to speak out for themselves. And I was in that situation once. And it's not something that I wish on anybody else. So you feel that you are sort of on the leading edge of a group of of a group of young people who have been ill served by their by society, by the medical profession? Right. And you're willing to you're willing to to do what most of us are not willing to do, which is to 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 let ourselves be be in that leadership group, right? And in a in a situation which is very uh, contentious. Yeah, I really feel strongly called to to speak on the subject after after going through what I have and speaking to to other people who have been. And now, many of our listeners uh, may know about may know your story more or less, but maybe you want to can you share with us um, a sketch of how you came to this point in your life, all the different things that happened. Yeah, so I am a detransitioner, meaning that I was somebody who went through the process of medically and socially transitioning to the opposite sex, and then I went back on my decision. And this all happened while I was still a kid. I started socially transitioning at 12, meaning that I changed my name in the way that I presented and dressed myself. And then I was medicalized at 13 with uh, puberty blockers or Lupron and testosterone. And at 15, 
I had a double mastectomy and just a year afterward when I was 16 was when I had stopped transitioning. Oh my gosh, you were extremely young at 12 to be um, making these decisions. What, let, let me ask you, do you, this decision, where did it come from? Were you uh, influenced by your peer group or what you were seeing on the internet? Yeah, for me, it was, I had struggles relating to, to being a girl growing up, but it wasn't until I started using social media that I was introduced to the idea that I could be a boy, that I didn't have to be a girl. And, and so, there were a lot of things that I think made me vulnerable to that, being that I started puberty at a pretty young age. And so my breasts started developing when I was only around eight or nine. And this was really uncomfortable. I would hear comments about it all the time from my peers. And I became really conscious of my body mm -hmm. at a very young age. And I started to develop body image issues. I often felt like I wasn't enough of a woman and that I would never compare to, to other girls and women and that I would be better off as a boy. I was also, um, I had a previous diagnosis of, of ADHD, but I, I strongly believe that I'm actually on the spectrum. And so you found, you found the onset of puberty very disturbing, which I'm not, I'm not uh, surprised. I mean, I'm a woman and I went through puberty and I found it very disturbing. When little girls start, when their bodies start to change, they become extremely self-conscious. And it sounds like that happened to you. I don't know if you agree with me, but our culture doesn't present to us images of, of womanhood, of young womanhood that are comfortable for our eyes, right? There are things that we no, think we can achieve or that we even we want to achieve. Yeah, that was another thing that really complicated this. I already had a habit of constantly comparing myself to my older sisters and female relatives and my friends. But I started using a phone when I was 11 and I started using social media and apps like Instagram because that's what everybody else my age was doing. Mm -hmm. And I... On Instagram, I saw a lot of images of young women that were often very, very sexual in nature and a lot of discussion having to do, do with that, that I don't think that anybody that age should, should be exposed to that. I mean, this is content that is already difficult for, for adults to digest. And for me, it definitely was. And it really did complicate my view of what being a woman was actually supposed to be like. And even the stuff that I would hear about, about womanhood from other women and girls was always very negative. It was always about the negatives, about the pain of menstruation and childbirth and pregnancy and menopause. And nobody ever talked about the good things that, that came with it. Mm -hmm. I didn't want... It was it was hard to imagine myself growing into a woman. Do you think that the, that the heavily... Uh, sexualized culture that is reflected back at girls where a woman I mean it, I've I've raised so far two girls and I've helped them go through womanhood and I had that experience too go into womanhood from girlhood and when you're a little girl you're protected you're like in this beautiful pink bubble right and everybody treats you beautifully right. and your parents treat you like a princess and everywhere you go you're you're a delight to everyone's eyes right but in but in mm. a beautiful pure sense in a very decent and moral sense and then when you start to look at womanhood as something that's about to happen to you what you see in the culture is that a woman is treated as a sexual object and so not only and I'm, I'm, I'm telling you how I feel, and you, and I'd like to know if this makes sense to you, if this is what you... No, it does. Yeah, that's absolutely how, how I feel. And then on, and in exchange, how I felt growing up. you say, okay, I'm going to become a sexual object. I'm also going to have a debilitating, painful, undignified period once a, once a month. And they say that childbirth is horrible and that and I'm going to be weighed down with screaming children. Why would I want to be a woman? Is, is that how you experience this? Yeah, I in a lot of these... The discussion that I would hear from from like young women, especially online and like these feminist circles about things like being a mother, the importance of like building a family was really downplayed. And it was always about like how annoying and screamy children are and how 
they they use phrases like ruin your body for for nothing just mm-hmm. so horrible like it's a total but another thing about that, that they don't bring anything about, good they only take away yeah, from you about what you said about childhood though about female childhood that was that was another thing i often felt like i wasn't taken seriously because i was too cute because i was just a, a girl and no matter if it often felt like because I was cute. I hated the word cute. I hate I hate being called cute. <laughs> you're you're like awfully nobody, cute. Nobody Chloe. <laughs> was listening to me or calling me seriously. Uh-huh. And I thought that was what being a girl was all about. Just trivial things, not really being important, always getting in the way. And I wanted to be something better than that. And you know, there is truth to what you say. Women, when we're not being sexualized, we're often very much um, treated in trivial in trivial ways, right? Like we're right. like we only think about things like dress and 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 casual things. Like we're not deep thinkers. I remember when I was in in medical school and working um, in a, in a big group of other of doctors. You know, we you do rounds, right? You do rounds with a bunch of doctors, and, and right. you're the lowest in the totem pole. And I would ask questions, but like I might I might make a comment or ask a question, but nobody would turn to look at me. And I felt it was because my voice was too high so I started pitching my voice lower <laughs> so so it's actually could, pretty common right that is really common I've talked to other women and they said yes you have to pitch your voice lower you have to ask more <laughs> act more like a guy so that people will um, pay attention to you and so what a strange world we present to our girls right here's the, the here welcome to womanhood here's what womanhood is like it's a uh, and we reflect back to them a very negative experience. And let right. me ask you, what did you hope life would be like as a man, as opposed to entering adulthood as a woman? What were your dreams? Well, I mean, a lot of my idea of what being a man was really like was kind of a caricature based off of how I saw my older male relatives, including my brothers and my dad. And I tried, I tried to mimic them. I tried to emulate them and my peers at school. And on one hand... I really just didn't want to be a woman, and I didn't really see myself as a woman. I often felt like I didn't even look like a girl at times, and I, I didn't really enjoy being feminine for, for a period of time. Mm-hmm. But I thought that transitioning was going to make me happy and whole as a person, that I was going to become my real self as a boy. So there was a hidden self inside of you, and you were going to open the doors to that hidden self, and that hidden self was masculine. Right. That's kind of how the trans community presents it. And on top of that, the medical community, I mean, the research that I had done on this, including from resources that my healthcare provider actually has, seemed to point at at transition as the only means of treating gender dysphoria. Do you think if you had been born 15 years earlier... And, and you had that same the same set, your makeup, your normal natural makeup that you were born with. Do you think that you that it would have manifested in a different way than it than as gender dysphoria? Because there is discussion about that, right? Trouble, girls, girls become troubled around puberty. Um, yeah, and they're absolutely. very emotional. What do you what do you think might have happened in, in another in another lifetime in another time? Yeah, I probably would have just if it weren't this, mm-hmm. I probably would have just been like an emo kid or something. Anyway. <laughs> Still very cute, <laughs> but dressed in black, right? <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's very hard. So, so you okay? So you're thir- you're twelve or thirteen, and they start medicalizing you. Were your parents opposed, or were they scared into into going along? Yeah, they actually pushed back on it heavily. They wanted me to wait until I was an adult, but they had their hand forced by the doctors. They were told like there there's not any other option, and, and if you don't do this, then she's going to kill herself. And you know now that they were wrong in a sense or do you do you think that they were right do they do they say that no. because they have the, the the numbers behind them or are they simply trying to scare parents yeah i mean they they cite really faulty studies 
like the 41% rate, for example. But and, and, I wasn't suicidal until I started transitioning. Oh, and then you went as far as until becoming... I was until I was on these treatments. Mm -hmm. And it made it so much worse. Well, you were taking tremendous doses of hormonal first the hormonal blocker Lupron that's a that's right. a that's a terrible drug Chloe people yeah. who have and men who have that. breast cancer and women I'm sorry men who have prostate cancer women with breast cancer take that drug and they they have terrible side effects and right you, and on top of that mm -hmm. I was constantly I was I was on other um, I was on psychiatric meds like uh, like uh, both short release and long release medication for ADHD and uh, they're using Wellbutrin as an antidepressant at, at at one point, even though it actually has like a huge black box warning for use in kids. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. And the HDH, the ADHD medicines cause emotional fluctuations, which are very violent. Right. So you were on all these drugs and here you are a little 12 year old girl trying to navigate this, this uh, hormonal nightmare and chemical nightmare that's much worse than puberty. Right. I mean, right. it's, it's so unnatural. Yeah. And really Puberty would have been the cure. Puberty was your cure. Amazing. And what, what happened when they added testosterone? What happened to your mental makeup and your emotional makeup when the testosterone started? The blockers were really stressful to be on because uh, the drop in sex hormones um, actually induced a period for me, which people say like it's supposed to be like a stasis where kids can decide whether whether they want to go on to the next puberty or not. Like a pause. But it's not like that. And, and it um, not only does it pretty much induce a state of, of menopause it also causes periods in girls who have already had them and you can't you can't you can't stop you can't stop puberty anyways mm -hmm. so i was i was very lethargic on them i was getting hot flashes and itching all over my body and i it was just really depressing for me i really just wanted to move on to the next treatment which came about a month afterward and i was put on testosterone which that that felt great because I finally, my body was no longer in the absence of sex hormones. And and testosterone is a very, um, it's it's a mood improver. It improves your powerful. mood. It gives you... It's powerful. It's a powerful, powerful hormone. It does, it does fabulous things. <laughs> if you want to improve your mood and have energy and sleep well and... Yeah, it's it's amazing. You know, yeah. you're describing you're you're describing I just went through menopause in the last couple of years and you're describing a very menopause is very difficult when you're all grown up and have a family around you and and understand your body. So I'm I'm very sorry you had to experience that at the tender age of 12. It's very sad. So then you take the testosterone and you have a new flowering of of sex hormone in your body. You have all the wonderful side effects of testosterone, but it's still not working for you. Oh, wait. We then you you had a mastectomy which yeah oh my god i mean i was i was very happy initially while starting on it but there mm -hmm. really nobody told me like there's going to be a honeymoon with these honeymoon period with yeah. all these treatments there is a honeymoon with testosterone for sure yeah and i as soon as i got into high school i actually became more and more distressed mm -hmm. and that was when i was put on wellbutrin and diagnosed with uh with with depression and then after a few years of stopping adhd meds they decided to put me on uh short release medication to treat my declining grades that were mostly caused by my, my depression that was not being properly treated. And now you're and now you're in a situation you're in high school. Um, I've right. put I've many I've been through high school many of my I have a lot of kids who've been through high school who are in high school and that's a very high school is a very socially fraught place. Um, especially for girls very lots of emotions and lots of problems but now you're trying to do high school um, on all these drugs and you're not yep. presenting you're presenting as a boy right socially um, as a yeah. young man and and that must come with a million social complications 
of the way people are interacting with you and reflecting back to you who you are. What was that like? Yeah, I feel like I do feel like it stunted my development socially and especially as a girl because I was I was socializing as a boy and I was being treated as one because everybody other than a few close friends thought that I was a boy and I was missing out on uh, things like dating and getting into relationships because a lot of my other friends my age were getting into relationships but I was still attracted to boys as somebody who appeared to be a boy and so my dating my dating pool was pretty severely limited yeah yeah of course and so you were still attracted to boys and you didn't think of yourself as a homosexual man I don't suppose at this point yeah I did you did yes well that's very confusing right yeah it was very difficult to navigate oh my gosh it sounds absolutely... I just can't imagine you doing this at this age, Chloe, and, and such a difficult age. It was a age. nightmare. It, that's such a nightmare. I'm, I can't, I, I'm beyond shocked that we're doing this to so many children in this country, putting them th- through these torturous situations that just go on year after year. And then, Even course, as somebody who, mm-hmm. who's gone through it, it still shocks me. I don't know how we've gotten to this point. Then, ha- then something happened to you, which as a physician, I, I can't... It wakes me up at night. And I think to myself, who are the doctors that remove healthy breasts from little girls? Who are these people? And how can we not, how have we not stopped them? What you, yeah. you endured a radical mastectomy. I believe it's radical, right? They take everything. They don't I, leave anything behind. No, I don't think it was a radical mastectomy. Um, they, so I did undergo a double mastectomy, mm-hmm. the incision that they, they called it, the incision type I got was the most common type, which they call um, double mastectomy with nipple grafts, meaning that they excise into um, the breast tissue, they take it out, and uh, they also graft the areolas onto a, they call it a more masculine positioning on the chest. Oh, okay. On so, the area, scraped skin. So it's not radical, but they remove the areolas and then regraft them. Yes. Yeah, and okay. they, they take out the breast tissue, and I think they also took out some lymph nodes with that as well, mm-hmm. because they, uh, they tested... Uh, they tested the tissue for cancer afterward, and I was perfectly healthy. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I mean, what does that feel like now to look back and say the doctors did this to me? A, a surgery of that of that import. It's it's very difficult to put into words just how painful it really is for me. Like I can I can describe my feelings around it and the pain I have and where the the most painful points are, mm-hmm. but. But it's impossible to really it, express, yeah. right? The the trauma that yeah, has been it, done to you and what and it what does is. feel like a part of my sexuality has been taken from me before I was able to fully realize it, and it hurts knowing like I'll never have that function back. Like I'll never have those those nerve endings back. I'll never be able to rescue my kids, and on top of that, I'm having complications with the grafts. No, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, uh, these surgeons, they tell girls when, who are undergoing these um, these evil mastectomies. I call them evil because there's no reason ever to amputate a body part that's not ailing. Um, they right. tell them that you can just get implants later if you change your mind. That's, that's not really true. I mean, you can never no. go back to a real female breast. Right. You can never bring the function back. And on top of that, implants come with their own range of complications. Mm-hmm. Humans aren't just Legos. You can't take parts on and off. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You didn't. You didn't go on with more surgeries. Um, no, I did not. And I'm sure you you thank God every day <laughs> that you didn't go on. Um, yeah, I would have. I would have been too young by their standards. Their their standards, which they actually broke their uh, their standards of care and how they treated me. 
Yeah, because the mastectomy was very early, right? Because this was some right. this was three years ago, and I, I think they're doing them earlier now, but 15 seems very early to me. For the yeah, I actually know somebody who had a mastectomy at, at 13. Oh, oh that's at just, the same hospital. That's just heartbreaking. A little 13-year-old girl with a mastectomy. Right. So you didn't go ahead with any more surgeries, and and I'm I'm very I'm very glad you didn't. Um, but people do very young people. So people, here let me ask you. I many people who def, who who are against transgender surgeries and medicalization for young people for for minors. They say, well, once you're 18, people can make their own decisions. That shocks not me. Not always. That shocks me because I've had 18 year old children, several, and they're not making good decisions. They're making lots no. of bad decisions no, all day long, not. and and that's it. Feels like as a parent, all you're doing is trying to protect them from bad decisions for years. What do you think about that? That once you're an adult, these things are all fine, and that that person, an 18 year old, can choose properly. No, once you hit 18. You might legally be an adult, but that doesn't mean you know all the answers. Mm-hmm. 18 is still very young, and you don't really, you still don't really have much experience or knowledge having to do with the world. I mean, a lot of people, these, a lot of people don't know that they want to have kids until they're in their late 20s to early 30s. Mm-hmm. And this is a decision that will affect that on top of pretty much every other aspect of your life mm-hmm. and i feel like 18 is just too young to to fully appreciate that i don't know if you want to share this but have do you think you've recovered your fertility you don't have to share that information with us obviously i haven't gotten a fertility test but uh i i started having my my uh my periods again um about two months after I started off to stop testosterone, oh, stop taking testosterone. I mean, um, but uh, then you must be okay. They, they, it's, I'm it's, very it's, glad it's surprising to hear that. because they've been they've been very regular. When before, I only had about three or four per year because I was so young. Well, and you were you were a little baby. That. You were a baby right. when all this happened. You were a tiny girl. So thank I thank really God, was. thank God that your fertility um, was preserved. And I'm very very sorry for all those who's fertility has been has been erased i was reading about I mean, a, a young boy who was on lupron and and he said that he didn't he didn't care about his fertility he's 14 this boy of course. he didn't care about his fertility and that if he changes mind later he could adopt um there is <laughs> there's like an abyss of ignorance in that statement which is normal for a 14 year old um and then somebody else who was who was against the this this uh, medicalization said, well, at least this child should have had um, fertility counseling. And I'm thinking, right, fertility counseling at fourteen with a fourteen year old boy. What does that even mean? What's a fourteen year old boy know? Even if you, how can you explain to a fourteen year old boy what that means to give up no your, your sons and daughters? No, I mean, no matter how much you tell a kid, they're not going to. They just can't make an informed decision on this. But I kind of had the same idea, like. When, when, when my endocrinologist told me, like, I might not be able to have kids, I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to have kids because I was 13 when I was, I was starting on these treatments. Yeah. But at the same time, I had this idea. Imagine yourself a mother. (laughs) Yeah. I had this idea that, like, if I wanted to have kids, then I could just go through, like, IVF or use a surrogate or something and that nothing could go wrong with any of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I was naive. I was a kid. 
Right. And there's a lot of rhetoric out there that acting like children can just, you can sort of pull them off trees like, like apples, right? When you want a child, yeah. you just reach up and grab one as though, yeah. as though that's even possible or, or even should be done, right? Like things, children should just be got whenever right. one wants them instead of coming from our bodies. Right. Chloe, we're, we're pretty much out of time. Um, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very honored to have had this conversation with you. I feel that um, the world is a better place because you're in it and because you are so brave and so good to speak so frankly about your troubles. And I know that you're saving lots of lives and lots of futures of young people. If, just as parting words of advice um, to, to parents, to grandparents, to aunts, to uncles who might be listening to this, to young people who might be listening to this and have friends who are struggling with gender dysphoria or family members, what, what would you say to them? This is never appropriate for kids. It's something that should wait until, until adulthood. And that doesn't necessarily mean when, that doesn't necessarily mean the moment that you turn 18. This is something, this is a decision that takes a long time to, um, to make a decision on. And there's no guarantee that it's going to treat your gender dysphoria. And chances are that if you do experience gender dysphoria, it might be caused by underlying issues and traumas that you have that need to be treated first. And an issue that I noticed with a lot of these dysphoric kids, um, they're not really active in, in their communities. They don't really partake in like school clubs or extracurriculars or sports or anything. And they're very lonely. They don't really have that sense of community around them, especially with their peers. And so they turn to the internet to, fo to fill that. When really they should be they should be working together with their peers. They should be they should be mingling with their peers and working together on something mm -hmm. to give them a sense of purpose. That's often what these kids are lacking, and they need to they need to be they need to know the truth because these doctors and this community that promotes this treatment as a one size fits all thing it's it's dangerous. It comes with a host of complications. And these doctors are often not informing their patients of the full picture of things. Well, there you have it. Thank you, Chloe Cole. And uh, thank you for joining us and telling us, um, telling us the truth of your, of your story. And thank you for your bravery. Thank you so much. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm joined now by my dear friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Ashley McGuire. So much fun to have you on the show, Ashley. Welcome back. Hey, Gracie. It's always so great to talk with you. So I was away for the last week on my family vacation. Thank God I needed it very badly, and uh, we had some beautiful family time. 
but there's been lots of stuff brewing here in the United States while I was gone and you have had your finger on the pulse, Ashley, of an FBI associated scandal. Well, you know, Gracie, you, you're probably not the only person who's missed this story. And that's because um, pretty much nobody's been covering it. And I actually, with, with the exception of a handful of conservative and religious outlets, uh, this story has totally fly, flown under the radar, but it has been getting more and more attention. So the story is that the FBI, a, a memo leaked from the FBI, much of which has later been redacted, but you can actually find the redacted memo online. And the memo was written by an agent out of the Richmond office, basically saying that um, they need to run this operation in people's churches, recruiting people's priests, um, recruiting people at church to essentially spy on people who go to uh, traditional Catholic masses. Traditional describes, traditional meaning the Latin mass or people or yeah. just or just very conservative parishes. Well, that's what's interesting. So in the memo it explicitly talks about traditionalist Latin mass going, which they define as radical traditionalist Catholics, a, a, a new terminology that I'd never heard before. Radical? Um, so radi- radi- radically uh, mantilla-wearing Catholics? Like we wear the <laughs> women who wear their mantillas radically? Like what are they concerned about? Well, so, I mean, to quote directly from the memo, it says racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists in radical traditionalist Catholic ideology. And and the memo says that they need new avenues, this is directly quoting, quote, new avenues for source and tripwire development through outreach to traditionalist Catholic parishes and the development of sources with the placement and access to report on, end quote, um, these people. So, yeah, so people who go to traditional Latin mass are apparently one step away from doing who knows what kinds of violent activities. I mean, it's that like where you're laughing um, because it's so utterly ridiculous. But, um, but, but Ashley, uh, before we get into the, the, the horrible violations of our, of, our, of our liberties as Americans, this the way this I mean, this is done in communist countries like China and Cuba, where you people are afraid to go to church because sitting next to you will be a, an informant. Um, Absolutely. What? No, and this, but you, you, you quoted racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists. Let's break that down a little. First of all, violent, violent. Have I missed a, a, a rash of um, traditional Catholic uh, terrorist attacks? <laughs> Did I somehow miss that? No, probably. Um, maybe people are a little confused because what there has been is a spate of hundreds, and I'm not exaggerating when I say hundreds, of attacks on Catholic churches perpetrated against Catholic churches by actual violent extremists who basically are upset about what the Catholic Church holds and believes, um, specifically abortion, but a number of other issues as well. Um, right, so, so Catholic, Catholic, vote- uh, Catholic um, churches being def- uh, defaced with graffiti, uh, statues being pushed over, there's been... Um- Several instances that I know of, just offhand, of uh, fires being set, uh, arson. Yeah, I know a that church our... two miles, a church two miles from my house was set on fire. It caused tens of thousands of dollars worth of damage. Um, this was last year, 
they desecrated the tabernacle, they knocked down and broke statues, and they tore down the stations of, of the cross. This was in the wake of the decision in Dobbs. And that's one of hundreds of attacks. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely an issue with violent extremists in this country. Uh, the issue is that they are targeting Catholic churches. They're targeting crisis pregnancy centers, including, like, the one that you work at, where my understanding is there was a death threat written yeah, on the wall. A year, almost a year ago today, uh, this this coming week. So it's, so it's almost like, well, it's I hate that word. It's, it's gotten so trite. Orwellian, right? It's Orwellian that the people who are being targeted for violent extremist acts are the ones who are being investigated, investigated by the FBI. Guess who they cite as a source of that label in the FBI memo? Who? The Southern Southern Poverty Law Center. So this is the same group. I mean, they're sort of this self-crowned, crowned themselves the entity in charge of like policing hate groups, quote unquote, extremist groups. Um, And basically what they do is go around and put targets on conservative organizations that I don't toe the line on what they believe about abortion, gender ideology, things like that. But no, I, I mean, the memo is absolutely ideological. It, it explicitly references the Catholic Church's beliefs on abortion. And it cites the Southern Poverty Law Center when it, when it comes to where they came up with the definition of radical um, Catholic traditionalists. So is this, could this be sort of a broadening of that idea of words are violence? I mean, possibly, but at least what I read in the memo didn't even, you know, wax philosophical like that. This memo seemed to actually suggest that the agent who wrote it thinks that um, certain types of Catholics are a danger. And an actual physical danger, like they're going to take, take up arms and go shoot up a i'm trying to think of a target for them which it's hard for me to think about them that way yeah and it's just what's so frightening about it is well a there's there's a couple things that are frightening about it first of all that uh according to congressman jim jordan who has run hearings investigating uh this memo which to be fair was disavowed by um merrick garland and but you know, only after only after it got leaked. But before that, it appears to, according to his sources that he cites in his subpoena um, and whistleblowers, it was distributed to field officers and field offices all across the country. A um, B was approved by much senior, much more senior intelligence officers uh, who should have you know rebuked this completely out of line agent and thrown the thing in the trash, fired him. Um, and B was actually proposed to be expanded to include not traditional, uh, Latin mass churches and masses, but what they call mainline Catholic churches, um, and, and senior officials, senior diocesan officials. So it, it just shows the kind of slippery slope that you start, you know, flying down when you have the government picking and choosing what forms of. Catholicism, Christianity, or insert name of religion or belief here are acceptable and which aren't. That it very quickly turns into something where, you know, the the net that ensnares people becomes much wider. And, you know, let's not forget that last year or two years ago at this time, 
that the group that was under, quote, investigation by the FBI were parents who were showing up at school board meetings wondering why the heck it was 18 months into the pandemic and public schools had been get forked over millions upon millions of dollars worth of funding to supposedly reopen and they were still closed because the teachers unions um, were acting like mafia figures instead of um, teachers and holding public schools hostage. So these parents were upset and school board meetings were obviously tense situations and they were labeled domestic terrorists and investigated by the FBI. So the FBI has basically been weaponized is being weaponized against American citizens who don't toe the line, who, who don't walk in, march in lockstep behind whatever it is that the administration and their thugs are doing. And right now that, you know, that happens to be the Catholic church. And it's really scary. And, you know, as you point out, this is the stuff of communist totalitarian countries. Um, and you don't have to be a Catholic who prefers um, the old Latin mass to be concerned about what its implications are for a free society. It's a terrifying thought that the, those tactics that are used in places like China and Cuba of infiltrating um, civic associations like like churches and, and temples and, and, and house churches, people who meet together for, for prayer services. That's what the government does in those places. They, they, they find out that someone's having a, a prayer service or, or they know about a mass that's going on and they will send um, an undercover person to, to monitor everything that's going on. And I've talked to Cubans, especially, and yeah, no Chinese, but I've talked to Cuban, Cuban friends of mine who explained um, that it doesn't just have a chilling effect on religious expression and religious, your relig ability to practice your religion, but it has a terrible um, effect on the trust between um, human beings. In other words, that you everywhere you go um, and, and in the place where you should have the most trust and the most and the, and the most ability to sort of unburden your unburden your soul and find companionship and which is what we find in our religious observances and find community, that's where you're most afraid of finding traitors and um, having your words recorded and used against you and somebody making you know career moves on your back. So I, I find this uh, memo extremely scary and, and it has a lot to do with the secularization of our society and the way that here in the United States, um, we used to have, we used to have a, a, a deep respect for a pluralistic, for our pluralistic society that everybody, you know, you, you imagine that scenario and it's true. Like in my little town, there's a corner where there is um, a, temp a Jewish temple a Presbyterian church, an Episcopalian church, and a Catholic church, and then there's another church. There's five churches in one corner. Um, and this, this is just a typical American, a little American community, right? And all of us coexist um, happily, and also the people who don't practice anything. And that's, that's the beauty of America. And I, don't, I can respect my Presbyterian neighbor and my atheist neighbor, and they respect me and, and my, our Jewish neighbors who go to temple. The other day it was... Um, it was uh, Passover, and the Jewish rabbi came because he knew my husband. He knows my husband used to be Jewish, and he brought us matzah for Passover, a beautiful box of, like, uh, gift matzah. It was gorgeous. Um, and this, this 
that the FBI has done flies in the face of that beautiful American pluralistic tradition where all of us live together in peace and respect each other and can see the brotherhood and the sisterhood of other co-religionists, uh, relig other religionists. Um, and don't we don't have to share all the same beliefs, but we can respect them. Don't you think that this just flies in the face of that and destroys the essence of who we are as Americans? Definitely. And, you know, <clears throat> in an article that I'm uh, working on about this, I point out that the irony is that it's these houses of worship um, that, you know, if, if the government really is concerned about violent extremism, the place where people come together peacefully despite differences are houses of worship. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, whether it's, and it, I was struck by this even before I really keyed into what was happening or what had happened with the FBI in these hearings. Um, the other day when I was at mass and, you know, sitting behind the row of wheelchairs at the front, um, you know, with the kind of wriggling kids in the back thinking in what other place anywhere in civil society am I simultaneously with rich people, poor people, people of all different races, people of all different political beliefs, disabled people, elderly, the youngest children, pregnant. It's just that. And, and I know that other houses of worship synagogues, are the same. And yeah, it's our. The, the, it's, it's really a beautiful part of our of our of our lives. It's it's the peaceful part. It's the community part. It's the loving part, right? Right. And these is, are the places and the experiences that actually quell extremism. Mm -hmm, exactly. Because it's where you are united in a higher belief and in a calling for the you know toward the common good with people that you're different from. And, and also, that has always actually, there's just no I can't think of any um, events that link traditional Catholics to violence. I, I can't think of a single one. Am I missing something that you know about? No, right? No. And I mean, that's a little bit. It's both besides the point and the point. I mean, it's, you know, both the idea that as you point out, the people who are wearing mantillas and, you know, doing Gregorian chants are going to suddenly pick up AK-47s is so bizarrely off-key that it's bizarre. The, women have, the um, women have too many children to be worried about <laughs> exactly. or to be able to go get their, drug, their gun license. They're way too busy. And the men are right. supporting all those babies. And that's really beautiful. But it's also, it's also besides the point because the real point is that they're being targeted because they're the people who are most likely to adhere to the church's teachings um, that people don't like. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's why they were being targeted in this quote unquote investigation. You know, I'm glad that the FBI is being called out, but more people need to be aware of this, that this was something real that happened um, it wasn't just, you know, I think the, there's an attempt to spin it as, oh, just some rogue agent in some office. No, it wasn't. Not according to the subpoena. Um, this was widely known about and I think is part of a broader concerning pattern of 
um, an entity that's meant to uh, protect our rights is being weaponized against our rights. Well, thank you, Ashley, for giving us all that information and for joining me today. Thanks, Crazy. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry. It's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation, the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when we enter into one of the most famous dialogues of all time, one that reveals so much about how Jesus seeks to engage each and all of us during the journey of our Christian life. It's the conversation that took place the night Jesus rose from the dead when he met two disciples walking along the seven-mile path downhill from Jerusalem to Emmaus. That the two disciples were heading away from Jerusalem, going downward into darkness, was not just an interesting historical fact, but also a symbol of how they were heading away from the light of faith that Jerusalem symbolizes. Their hearts had just been put in a blender. They believed in Jesus, deeming him to be the long-awaited Messiah, Yet their hopes were crushed when they saw him mangled and executed by the Romans they anticipated he was going to evict. Earlier that day, women had said that his tomb was empty and that they had said, seen a vision of angels saying that Jesus was alive. But they were obviously reluctant to believe again and have their hopes crushed again. Jesus, however, met them along the way. He met them where they were at with all their questions and doubts. But their sadness and likely some undescribed changes in Jesus' risen appearance and voice prevented them from recognizing him. The seeming stranger stuck his nose into the middle of their conversation and asked, what are you talking about? They thought he had no idea, as if he were the only person in Dallas on November 23, 1963, who hadn't heard of the Kennedy assassination the previous day. So they told him about their hopes for this person named Jesus, a prophet mighty in deed and word, who they thought would be the one to redeem Israel, but who was betrayed and crucified. The incognito Jesus, however, upbraided them, called them foolish and slow of heart to believe, starting with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted for them the passages of sacred scripture that referred to why the Messiah had to suffer these things to enter into his glory. Doubtless he would have mentioned the just Abel's being killed by his envious brother Cain, Isaac's carrying the wood for the sacrifice on his shoulders, Moses through the Passover leading the people through the Red Sea and desert into the promised land, Isaiah's prophecies about the suffering servant, the book of wisdoms foretelling that the just man would be beset by evildoers, the many Psalms like Psalm 22 and 69 that had foretold various details of the crucifixion, the prophecy of Jonah spending three days in the belly of the earth, and so much more. As this anonymous wayfarer was talking, the light of truth began to penetrate the great darkness of the disciples' sadness. They would later recount that their hearts, which had been previously slow to believe, began to burn as this companion spoke to them along the way, even though they still had no idea who he was. They didn't want the conversation to end, hence they invited him into their home. Stay with us, they said. Jesus, who never wants to impose himself on us, gratefully accepted their invitation. And he had something far greater in mind than merely staying with them. When he was at table, 
He took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. These four verbs are the ones the evangelists use to describe the multiplication of loaves and fish, as well as the celebration of the Eucharist. They were a sign that Jesus entered their home to make it an upper room and do what he had done three nights before during the Last Supper. As soon as he had given them the, quote, bread he had taken, blessed, and broken, the bread that he had turned into himself, he seemed to vanish from their midst. But he really hadn't vanished at all because he remained with them under sacramental appearances. They could no longer see with their eyes the guest who had journeyed with them, but they could see him now with the eyes of faith under sacramental appearances. He remained with them. He stayed with them in the Eucharist. This points to a central truth. The Lord didn't want merely to stay with them, but to remain within them through Holy Communion. Then, even though it was already night and there were no streetlights in the ancient world, even though they were probably exhausted from the seven-mile journey downhill, they burst through the door of their home and ran those seven miles uphill in pitch blackness in order to spread the word to the apostles that they had encountered the Lord Jesus. They had come into contact with Jesus, risen from the dead, and with burning hearts and likely burning feet, they couldn't wait until the morning to share the news. We learn so much from this scene, but let's focus on three lessons. First, we learn about what Jesus wishes to do with us in life. He wants to enter into conversation with us, to join us on our journey. And just like he helped these two disciples, he wants to assist us in interpreting present events, including and especially our crosses, in the light of what he has revealed. He wants to give light to the questions we have. Are we aware that he is with us on the road to our home? and accompanies us on our journey. Second, we learn about the Mass. Many saints and scholars have seen in Jesus' interaction with the two disciples the outline of the Mass. We start with the Liturgy of the Word, which Jesus seeks to open us up to the truths of sacred scripture, to help us to see how all scripture is fulfilled in him, and to make our hearts burn again. The more we hear God's voice speaking to us through sacred scripture, the easier it is to recognize Jesus in the Eucharist, just as the disciples did in Emmaus. The reason for this is simple. The more attentively we hang on what Jesus is telling us in the gospel and through the other readings that point to him, the easier it is to hear his voice and trust in him as he says to us in the Mass, this is my body given for you, and this is the chalice of my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The more we read about Jesus' miracles, the easier it is for us to accept the mind-blowing, continuous miracle of the Eucharist. And the more aware that Jesus is speaking to us at Mass as he interprets for us the Scripture and stays not just with us but in us in the Eucharist, then the more we burst with the desire to share him with others and run with enthusiasm to share that good news. The disciples of Emmaus couldn't wait to share with others their encounter with Jesus, what he had revealed to them about sacred scripture, what he had done for them in celebrating the Mass in their home. How can we ever keep to ourselves Jesus' similar mind-blowing love for us? The last application I'll mention is with regard to what Jesus teaches us about sharing the faith with those we know who might be journeying away from Jerusalem downhill into darkness. Many today are like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, confused, saddened, scandalized, wandering away from the practice of the faith. Five of six Catholics do something else on Sunday rather than keep holy the Lord's Day by coming to be with him at Mass. As Pope Francis said in a powerful address to bishops in Brazil in 2013, Jesus shows us that the reasons for their departure 
often contain the seeds for their return. Just like the two disciples were leaving because they thought Jesus' crucifixion was a contradiction of the Messianic prophecies. When the unrecognized Jesus helped them to see that it was rather a confirmation of those prophecies, that's when their world was flipped right side up. We need to do the same thing with those who have drifted from the church, accompanying our family members and friends, entering into dialogue with them, taking their questions seriously, and trying to bring a proper understanding of revelation to their doubts. If they're leaving because of the lack of holiness manifested by the sex abuse scandals, we need to help them not focus just on the Judases, but on the successors of the other 11 who remain faithful. If they're leaving because they think the church hates those with same-sex attraction, we need to help them see how Jesus and his church loves them even more because it loves them with the truth. If they're leaving because of unanswered prayers to save the life of a loved one, we need to help them to see that God's will for our deceased loved one involves a life far greater than even the best of earthly experiences. If they're leaving because they find Mass boring, it's a sign that they're looking for God and haven't found him yet where they should. We need both to try to bring them to churches that are truly on fire and help those parishes in which many are just going through the motions to remember their first love, implore a new Pentecost, and with hearts aflame with love for God and each other, help to make others' slow hearts burn anew. Pope Francis pointedly asked in Brazil a decade ago whether we are still a church capable of warming hearts, of leading people back to Jerusalem. When our hearts are on fire with God's love and his word and the sacraments, we sure are. And just like the risen Jesus entered into dialogue with Clopas and his companion on, his, on Emmaus Street, so he wants to enter into conversation with us each day in life so that he might ignite us with the light of his resurrection and equip us to be his instruments to set the world ablaze. So as we prepare for Mass this weekend, let us ask, the Lord to help us look differently, not just at the liturgy of the word by which he does for us what he did for these two disciples, not just at how Jesus responds to our plea to stay with us by taking blessing, breaking and giving to us bread and wine that he has totally changed into himself, but how he seeks to make our whole life a conversation just as consequential as the dialogue he had with his disciples Easter night. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 